0: Mm -hmm. Ah! sometimes all people want to know is where's the body right like i don't care Mm. who did it i want to know where she is is the what i hear from mothers you know they they don't even need to get in the courtroom (laughs) they just want to find her or him or
1: and know where Mm. they are podcast junkies we are back it's episode 152 i'm your host harry duran if you are new then i'm virtually high-fiving you because i love when new people find the show i see comments every now and then on twitter and on facebook uh, that people are discovering it and that just makes my my heart warm and i welcome you to the podcast junkies family So this is the show where we get to speak to a wide range of podcasters. That's the unifying thread. They're all amazing podcasters. Some have been doing it for 10 plus years. Some have just been getting started. And this is an interesting uh, week. This is an interesting episode, my conversation with David Ridgen. But before I go there, uh, in case you missed last week's show, we spoke to Clay Groves. He's the host of the Fish Nerds. Podcast probably <laughs> uh, ranks as one of the top uh, album, album, album arts or album, uh, episode covers or what do, you, what do you want to call it? Artwork. Uh, because I always ask the guests to submit a, a photo. So, you know, I'm putting them in the best light when I share it on social media and clays <laughs> did not disappoint. So please check it out. I won't give it away, but check out um, the artwork for episode 151. You can check that out at podcastjunkies.com slash 151. Um, to see the uh, very fun image that Clay spoke. We had a really fun time uh, talking about ice fishing and uh, all. he's a sort of jack-of-all-trades and just a very entertaining personality, so that's, that was a lot of fun to record. I met him at MapCon. This week, uh, like I mentioned, David Ridgen, he's a filmmaker at CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Company, and he's been trained as a documentary storyteller and as a filmmaker, as a screenwriter... Uh, and as an investigative journalist, and he's been there over 10 years. And this is a really interesting conversation, guys and gals, because throughout the conversation, we talk actually about the difference between making a podcast and making an investigative film. Um, we mentioned this, the unfamiliarity of podcasts in Canada, how David goes about finding a case to investigate. This all comes, um, on the heels just to set some context of uh, an introduction that was made to me where I found out about David's work. And initially I'll be quite honest, like, uh, I, I'm not a, a big fan of the, the true crime genre, but I think I've been limiting myself. And after this conversation with David, um, my mind has been opened up uh, and to seeing and hearing some of the the great work that uh folks like him are putting together um so I, I think you'll r- really find it interesting um j- just continuing, we talked about how many families are still seeking closure from unsolved crime cases, and like we think like even with all the the true crime podcasts out there that uh there's a glut, but uh, when you think about the that compared to how many unsolved cases there are, it's really um Probably close, not even a drop in the bucket. And I'm just fascinated by the lengthy scripts that are involved, um, to produce, uh, someone knows something specifically David's show. So really, really interesting discussion. I'm, I'm really happy to, to share, share it with you. So as always, the full show notes are going to be available at uh, podcastjunkies.com slash 152. And I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to, to look through those and you'll see that we have, uh, qu- uh <laughs> I knew I was going to mess that phrase up. "A tweetable quotes" um or "tweetables" as they're as they're called. So if you see something that's uh of, of interest to you that we talked about, that, that's a very easy way to share. Any links mentioned, um we have a summary, we have timestamps. Uh we put a lot of work into those, uh, a lot of our heart and s- heart, soul, blood, sweat, tears what have you. Um so if um if if that's of interest to you then uh, definitely check that out. Uh this episode is brought to you by Podbean. So Podbean right now is having a special, uh, they're calling it Celebrate the Holidays with free recording gear, and it's a partnership with Samson uh, as their way of, of thanking all the folks who are just kicking butt with podcasts. Um, they've partnered up together and provided a special holiday gift to one lucky podcaster. So from um, just ongoing through December 15th, um, any podcaster can enter, so you'll be hearing this in time to win a Samson streaming studio. It's going to include a dynamic microphone, uh, desktop stand, USB mixer, headphones, XLR cable. Really, really awesome offer. All you have to do is head on over to podcastjunkies.com slash podbean Samson, all one word: P O D B E A N S A M S O N. Podbean Samson, and you can sign up for the giveaway there. Stay tuned to the end of the episode where I reveal this. Week's amazing retention hashtag. They're always amazing, aren't they? (laughs) But for now, uh, enjoy this really fascinating discussion. Really, really interesting with uh, David. So, David Ridgen, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Oh, Thanks for having me. So, David, we were uh, connected because of some work that you're doing on uh, Someone Knows Something. Um, It's a new uh, true crime podcast. And true crime seems to be top of mind for a lot of people right now. Um, and it's uh, uh, it was born from uh, CBS Radio. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the podcast itself, and then we'll, we'll dig into a little bit of, of your background?
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I do this podcast uh, for Canadian Broadcast, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. It's a uh, public broadcaster in Canada, and I developed this original podcast with the podcasting group there. Uh, which was in its infancy. Basically, this was one of the first podcasts that they had developed. They had asked me to come in to develop a true crime podcast. And Someone Knows Something was born out of that. And that itself comes from my history in in investigations as a filmmaker at CBC. Um, so I was involved in one of the first cases. In fact, probably the first case I worked on is this 1964 Klan murders of Charles Moore and Henry D, which is the subject of season three and uh the whole idea the process is basically how i go about looking into these cases i'll involve a family member if they're interested in looking in the case at the case uh, if they're look interested in, you know looking into areas they've never looked at before then they'll work with me and i'll work with them and look back at uh talking to witnesses looking at information we haven't seen before fbi files in this case police uh, we'll talk to police and sometimes families have in mind suspects or people that they've always heard or thought might have had something to do with it. So uh, I record, you know, I- interactions in that direction as well. But the most important thing is the process of SKS. And uh, so I record basically everything I do, uh, all the interactions I have with uh, with family members and uh, interviewees and, and even some kind, sometimes just ruminations about what I'm doing at the time. And uh, that all kind of was developed in mid-2000s when I was working on the Mississippi case. And it's kind of transferred into Someone Knows Something. in each of the cases we do each year, uh, Each sorry, each season focuses on a different case. And I guess the first season was locally based in the town that I grew up in, the case of Adrian McNaughton, who disappeared on a fishing trip in the early 70s. And uh, the second season was in a much larger community where I hadn't grown up and I had to make new inroads in Hamilton, Ontario, which is a large city, Uh, the case of Cheryl Shepard. Third season will be uh, a look back at a case that I've worked on already and had success with in Mississippi. And then season four is a case that I've also worked on before, but I'm adding new information to, the case of Wayne Gravett. And then season five is, this is all going to be coming up before the, before the end of spring 2018. Season five is a new case made in more like the standard of season one and season two.
1: So you've also made uh, four investigative films as well. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, the work that, that goes into making a film um, as opposed to what you're experiencing now with these the seasons of the podcast?
0: Yeah, I love the podcast format because it affords a lot of space, so we can tell stories in a much more breathable fashion. We can put a lot more depth into the story. We can put a lot more information in. Uh, whereas in television, television documentaries and radio documentaries, radio is a little bit more expansive, but there's a there's a tendency to uh, edit towards the slot. So you have a you know a twelve minute slot or a twenty minute slot, and you have to compact your message, you have to compact your interviews and you have to compact your relationships all into those slots. Whereas podcasting allows you to tell the story to the length it should be, you know, it, it's also, it, it's not that podcasting is basically like reading a novel. It's not endless. Uh, but podcasting mm-hmm. in, in my experience in, in true crime allows us to tell the fuller story, uh, in a much more natural way, I think than, uh, than any of the other media.
1: Do you remember um, when it, the moment when you realized or you became aware of podcasting as a platform for, for delivering this kind of message in, personally?
0: Uh, do I remember? Um, I remember hearing about Serial. I remember hearing about the success mm-hmm. of Serial. I have not listened to Serial. Yeah. <laughs> I've not listened to Serial. <laughs> I've actually not listened to very many podcasts. Uh, certainly well i could almost say i haven't listened to any podcasts <laughs> uh, i've only listened yeah. to i've only listened to few little dips and pieces of of other podcasts mainly because i don't like to feel like i'm going to emulate or copy or mimic something else sometimes we have a tendency towards doing that even if even if unconsciously so i try to yeah. stay away from that and as a doc maker i also uh, sh- uh, stay away from watching other people's documentaries which may sound really strange to listeners but hmm. i um I like to develop my own paradigm and, uh, also to be realistic, I just don't have the time to, to, to listen. I don't, I haven't made the time I guess also, but in, in expressing myself through these works and, and the time it takes to work with family members and look back at these cases, it's really all encompassing and that sort of juggling that with my personal life, my family life, I really just don't, I don't have the time to listen to other podcasts, but, uh, so SKS is the podcast that I listen to, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, not in a selfish way. I just think that that's just the way it works yeah. out. So,
1: yeah, it's interesting because Serial was a you know seminal moment uh, for podcasting because it, it brought into the awareness um, the the idea of a podcast. And a lot of people don't even know what a podcast is, and. Uh, do you have that challenge as well as you're sharing people, you know, sharing the, the story in SKS with other friends and, and family that you actually have to describe to them what a podcast is?
0: Podcasting in Canada hasn't really taken hold in the way that it has in the United States and possibly in Europe. Um, although, it, I mean, SKS and there's other podcasts that are starting to become successful here. It's it's just starting to to gain some traction and get a critical mass, but yeah, When Mm -hmm. I speak to people and say, it's a podcast, I still, I mean, people my age or younger, I'm 49 and younger kind of get what a podcast is. They know some, even some of them are like, how do you do it? How do you listen to it? What do you mean? It's on your phone. And, and then (laughs) sort of older, it's like, it's really hard. It's like, it's a documentary, right? It's a documentary and you can listen to it here, 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 and here. And it, it just confuses because they're used to one location, right. And one delivery method. And, uh, but I mean, it takes time to immerse into the situation, even though they may have heard of serial, they still don't know exactly what that might be, you know? And, uh, certainly I think the true crime podcasts have been leading the charge and getting into new areas and new audiences and bringing new audiences to podcasting as a format. I think it it draws on a wide range of listeners, uh, in the true crime milieu and then it may lead them towards other podcasts they never expected that they'd be interested in.
1: You've been doing this for some time. Uh, In one of the recap episodes, you talked with uh, the host about how you you actually got called back to start uh, SKS um, because you were a bit hesitant because of the experiences you've had previously as an investigative journalist. Can you talk a little bit about that as well?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I worked on this. I worked on the Mississippi case. I worked on other cases in Mississippi from the Mm -hmm. civil rights era, Klan murders of African Americans. Uh, and I worked on several cases in a ca- in Canada, uh, three or four or four or five cases in Canada. And uh, I don't want to overbear the, you know, that the burden I'm carrying and all this stuff, but it does have an effect. And when you work this mm-hmm. long and pr- in a, a very in-depth way, you can't unsee the crime scene photos. You can't unhear the family members' pain and guilt and suffering. And to me, it I just, I absorb that. And it's really hard to... Mm-hmm unlisten to that or unhear it and it 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 starts to get to me particularly after a season's over three or four months later uh, sleeping issues etc and uh, I just decided I'd had enough and I mean I was always interested in working in lots of different kinds of media lots of different kinds of storytelling and lots of different topics and you know I've worked in the Middle East I've worked on political documentaries I've worked on dramas and um, you know I never I wasn't born when I was growing up thinking I'm going to be an investigative journalist podcast guy uh, or a hmm. filmmaker that does investigations, I kind of fell into it, was successful at it and kept doing it for a while. And it started to, uh, it started to tear away at me a little bit in the same way that family members and police and anybody else involved in these cases can, in, can internalize these things. And, uh, I stepped away for a while and CBC came to me and said, we want you to come back, consider this. I actually called all the family members I've ever worked with and asked them if they thought it was worthwhile what we had done. Do you think mm-hmm. doing this was worth it for you? I, and, you know, cause I think we, we've cheat ourselves as media people and pretend sometimes that we're doing things that are much more extravagant than they actually are. So I wanted to get a bit of yeah. a reality check and all of them said, go ahead and do it. As I say in my, in the prologue, which may be a bit overborn as well but they did say go ahead and do it and i thought well if they thought it was worthwhile i'll try it podcasting sounds exciting i was really excited by the idea of hosting it and writing a lot of new writing i was particularly interested in that so i tried it and it's you know again (laughs) the same kinds of issues are happening the same kinds of uh, uh intense situations sort of emotions that are coming up and dealing with family members and and all the information that cases hold with them i still have those and those things are still starting to you know back up on me a bit but it's been a great experience thus far and uh at one point or soon i probably will have to take a bit of a break because it's been uh the success you don't want to start stop after the first two seasons and just you want to you know keep going but there's a certain point where you have to kind of give yourself a break and I really haven't had one for three years or about three years
1: now. So uh, it's coming on again. <laughs> what, one of the things you mentioned that I thought was interesting is that you had anxiety and panic attacks as a child. So I'm wondering, do you have a, a mechanism or a system for like cope, coping with this afterwards or, or decompressing or disconnecting from the subject matter? I, Cause I imagine it's pretty, in, it gets pretty intense.
0: It does, I mean, yeah, I did have these panic attacks and just kind of came out of nowhere, had that dealt with. Basically, breathing. <laughs> breathing is, mm-hmm. is the key to me, uh, to, to success for me. And um, just a few deep breaths helps a lot to tell you that you have control of, of yourself. And uh, it also actually physically, physiologically helps to calm you down, to do mm-hmm. deep breaths, holding your breath, letting it out carefully, being you know conscious of of, of, of where you are and what you're doing. It sounds... Kind of hippie language, but I guess I am a hippie. <laughs> um, anyway, it, it is, it is just breathing and that really helps me. But, uh, I think dealing with those kinds of intense anxiety moments of panic, even though they were coming seemingly from nowhere, have helped in several situations with SKS and other programming that I've done walking up to, you know, people's houses, knocking on the door and saying, hi, did you yeah. have something to do with this murder? And things like that. And just encountering anybody that has to do with the case. People often unload on me uh, as a sort of almost a psychologist. And and I'm kind of, you have to kind of take that in. And uh, as part of the programming, right? So uh, they, cause they haven't had a chance to talk about this with anybody. They they, they don't talk mm-hmm. about it with family. They haven't talked to police about it. And here I am waiting to hear all of it. <laughs> so, so I, I ask for it and I receive it. Um, so, there are situations where breathing really helps.
1: What type of uh training do, did you have or or you know what did you learn along the way that helped you to become what I imagine uh, is is a need to be empathetic when you have these conversations? I mean when you 're hearing them it 's so it 's so intimate when you hear them via audio because you know we 're typically listening in earbuds, and so it seems like it amplifies the emotion. And, and the pregnant pauses, um, and, and I'm wondering, uh, is, that, is that something you just got better with over time?
0: Uh, for sure. I mean, I trained as a documentary storyteller, basically, as a filmmaker, and uh, that's what I've transferred sort of a cinematic nature to the podcast, and I've also trained as a screenwriter, and I learned on the job at CBC as a news person or as an investigator, as a journalist, um, over, you know, the 10 years or so that I've been there, uh, on a sta- as a staff member and then afterwards as a freelancer. Um, but it, I mean, the main thing when you're doing interviews is really just to listen and to stop trying to mm-hmm. jump on, on your subjects, you know, try to crush what they're saying or the pregnant pauses are, are important because the person you're talking to always wants to fill the pause. And you have to be aware of that. And if if you don't have a question that you actually want the answer to, then don't ask it, right? Like those are mm-hmm. the two. The two rules are: let the silence speak, and only ask a question if you want the answer. You know, don't don't ask a question just to keep the conversation going. Um, those are the two rules. They're really simple.
1: And how do you go about asking the tough questions? Because there's a couple in there where you know you really you 're going to open up uh, an emotional can of worms, and I think you you probably know that going in so is there is there anything you do to prepare yourself uh, to, to ask a, a really tough question, especially around these topics?
0: Well, when you go into an interview and you have it, you know it's going to be a tough one or something likely to create some kind of anxiety in the subject, you first have to you have to kind of make a protracted very f- quick connection with, <laughs> with the person so that they know that what's coming is placed in, 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 with a good heart, if that makes sense. So you have to create kind okay. of a situation where they don't think you're there as a black and white kind of, I know you did it person, right? That you, they need to feel that they shade that you understand shades of gray as the questioner, mm-hmm. they need to understand that you as the questioner respect them and, and feel that you know, have empathy for them, uh, you have to love your subjects no matter who they are. And and that's another, Mm. that's a, that's a key for me. That's how I think about it. And, um, and I try to make those connections right off the bat so that anything that comes after that becomes much more of an understandable part of the equation. You know, it becomes something that is more acceptable, uh, to, even if it's, did you kill this person? Uh, you know, and often I won't say it that way. Often I'll say something like if police had come to you and said, did you have something to do with this murder? What would you have said? You know, like, so it's not really me asking, it's me asking, but it's not me saying it. Um, so that's just a quick example. That may not be what I do, but everything's different. I love the challenge of going in with just cold I love not rehearsing. I love not knowing what the questions are first in any interview I do. Uh I love I love that. I just I think that the situations have to be you have to be malleable because the situation's going to change quickly anyways, so there's no point in having a list of questions. And uh I don't know if I answered your question or not, but
1: No, that that that's, a, that's fantastic, you know, cuz we you know we you know we as, as podcast hosts it's very relevant and and I'm fascinated by the idea of uh interviewing subjects and difficult interviews and and i'm a, i'm a i love the fact that you said that you know to, to have that pause and, and let that sit because so many times we get so nervous with the silence uh that we f- we feel the need to fill that space and we ended up we end up losing uh, a really good opportunity because sometimes people need time to think about an answer
0: absolutely and i would say in almost every interview you lose those opportunities and I, mean, I do it all the time still i still feel like i have to jump in sometimes and it, you know I really didn't I just I'll, I'll wait the pregnant pause I'll wait another pregnant pause then I just say the first word of something and they're about to answer with something <laughs> they're about to give me what I was waiting for right so Mm-hmm. If I'd only waited that, that third pause, you know? So <laughs> the more, t- the more time you give for the, to wait for responses, the better. And, and obviously the more, the more it's genuine, the pause. It's not like you're just sitting there can't looking at your watch. Uh, it has to yeah. be germane to the conversation, obviously. But, uh,
1: anyway. As as you were as you were um getting experience in investigative journalism were there folks that were in the space that maybe you considered a mentor or people that you looked up to or 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 people maybe who in the beginning that you emulated as as you were getting your feet wet
0: Not really um and it's not to say that uh, there's not a lot of great investigative people that have come out of CBC or out of Canada in general um I guess as a documentary maker I was interested in the work of Michael Moore not necessarily in his mm-hmm. politics, although I do tend to agree with a lot of the things he says and does. It's just the way he approaches things directly as as the per, as the sort of creator of the chaos around him. I, I like the yeah. that kind of approach where you're you're facilitating an action and and that action turns into a documentary moment. I I think that sometimes it create you're creating a theater when you do that, and that's not my interest. But I like the idea that you can sort of make situations where the luck comes to you and, and you create a mm-hmm. situation where something might happen in terms of getting information from somebody. And, and I guess that would be one person I would cite or in early days, right? Like way back Roger yeah. and me sort of stuff. And, um, I can't really say any, any other particular person because I really just kind of developed my own way of doing things, working with the family members and and that was it. Uh, way back in the, I don't know, mid two thousand two thousand four 2004, really, it started. And I just went from there and kind of made my own paradigm. I hope that doesn't sound arrogant. <laughs> I don't have any mentors. <laughs> no, no, I no. mean, I've had a lot of people help me. I've had uh, JS journalistic standards and practices, people at CBC help me with You know uh talking to them on hidden camera or hidden mic situations i hadn't known that you needed sort of certain permissions to do and obviously i get all those permissions Mm -hmm. before i do anything we have a great legal team at cbc who've informed almost everything i do and uh
1: you know there's a great people that i work with too on the show yeah How, how do you go about uh finding a case because i imagine there's a lot of cases out there that are unsolved um, so, what's the process you use to figure out which one you want to dig a bit deeper into?
0: Yeah, there's hundreds, thousands of cases. It's it's a real uh, there's no there's no shortage of cases. Um, so I have stacks. I had in, in the in the old days, I had stacks of actual paper on my desk for cases, and I'd go through them and look for a few pillars. One of them being a family member who was desperate or interested in helping find a solution mm-hmm. to the case somebody who hadn't already done that somebody who always wanted to look back at the case but didn't have the means uh or the sort of facilitation to let that happen uh I look for law enforcement that are interested in helping in a real way and cooperating and collaborating in a real way in, in a certain you know journalistic fashion uh willing to talk about you know a case in more than just sound bites and I look for cases that had maybe a viable suspect that got away or somebody who was suspected and had been named even in the media, but some kind of, uh, technicality got them off or some, for some reason, uh, something didn't go properly in the trial period or pre-trial period. Uh, I'll look for that, but often I'll get people emailing me and we get this all the time on SKS now hmm. and say, look, my brother died, mysterious circumstances, Uh, We've always wondered what happened. My mother says, this guy, this guy did it. Uh, We've never had anybody help us. Here's all the information. Will you please help us? And we get a request like that at least two or three a day sometimes, uh, it seems. And uh, we have to evaluate them. And, you know, sometimes we get, I know who killed JFK too, right? So it's like, (laughs) and, and so you have to decide, maybe the person does know, but do we have time to figure out if they really know and whatever. So we have to evaluate Each case on its own merits, if we have time. It's a small team. Our budgets aren't extraordinarily huge by any standards. And uh, I'm one person, and the way the show is structured, I have to do the interviews in the field. I make the relationships. I approach people for access. And it's pretty much all siphoned through my bottleneck. So I'm only capable physically and mentally of doing one or two cases at a time. And, uh, and, and, you know, that actually adds up to sort of one or two cases per year. And, um, so, you know, with hundreds going through the bottleneck of, you know, trying to figure out if we can do them or not, we're really only going to get to a very tiny fraction of them. But, uh, that's why it'd be so great if, uh, you know, more podcasters could undertake some things like this. I think there's, there's a lot of room in this market, in this area for, uh, for quality work.
1: Yeah it's interesting because it seems to be a resurgence in and it's it seems like the podcasting platform has really allowed for the creation of these types of shows that otherwise would not have been in in the public eye or ear so to speak and and I think to your point the fact that there's hundreds if not thousands of these I guess there's not you know there's not going to be any shortage of opportunities for people who are interested in investigative journalism and and moving it to the podcast format
0: Yeah. And and I think people's uh, audience, audience of SKS, I think understands this now that the process of looking at these cases is as important, if not more important than actually the outcome, at least right away anyway, because there's 95%. You're never going to get to the conclusion, get into the courtroom, you know, get a conviction at the end of the podcast. I mean, I think people who expect that that's ludicrous. Right. And, and, um, Mm -hmm. I think that The process of, the the story of involving the family member, their personal journey through the case, how they change from beginning to end, like in screenplay format, you know, how does the main character change from the beginning to the end that defines that it's a, that it's a screenplay. Um, Those are important elements to SKS that I think people listen for. Uh, and, and I think our our listeners understand that justice is, it takes a while and sometimes justice doesn't take the format of just a courtroom. You know, sometimes truth is enough for a family to get what they call closure. I think it's a problematic term, but family members say closure all the time and closure can just be facing what you always feared. Right. And it's like throwing somebody into the elevator. I always say, who's afraid of elevators. Mm -hmm. And um, that's an important story, Watch, f- hearing that journey and experiencing it, seeing family members, listen to stories that other people tell them, witnesses tell them, learning about their lost loved one or uh, in ways that they've never known before, feeling like they have power and agency. Those are, those are important factors and uh, not to be overlooked. And I think they're actually the highlights of, this, of, the, of our series. That's how I see it.
1: What's interesting is that you know, f- uh, for a while, I was of the of the of the mind that you know the true crime is just sensationalizing the crimes. Um, but it's not like, and I think what you're doing with investigative journalism is you're really shining a light on these cases that would otherwise have gone unnoticed. But uh, this this aspect of closure, I think, is, is really important. And if there are hundreds and thousands of cases out there, there's potentially that many families who have yet to to have that sense of closure um, with regards to their respective case.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's as many families, like (laughs) if there, if there's a case, there's going to be a family, there's going to be friends, there's going to be, you know, huge tree of people connected in a web to the case that have had some kind of, you know, loss connected to them. And humans can experience lots of different kinds of loss and sudden disappearance of somebody has got to be one of the worst, uh, because the answers just don't ever come right Sometimes all people want to know is where's the body, right? Like I don't care Mm. who did it. I want to know where she is, is the, what I hear from mothers, you know, and, um, they they don't even need to get in the courtroom. (laughs) They just want to find her or him or, and know where Mm. they are, right? Like that's, that's what troubles humans, uh, not necessarily because justice, okay, you go to the courtroom, you get the guy, he gets to jail, you walk out. And you still have the loss, right? So it's it's got to be more than just just getting into the courtroom. Truth, truth is a big part of it, right? And you can't get to the courtroom without finding the truth. So,
1: yeah, that's really important. You touched a bit on on the team. Um, can you talk about the importance of having that that support uh, team around you, and 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 how everyone is contributing to the final production?
0: Sure. So first season, it was uh, really. I did most of everything on my own. I had some help uh, from associate producers. Uh, second season, it was much more sort of, we got kind of a little bit of a model going, a work model. And uh, it got to the point where, well, I would write most of the scripts. I think I wrote up to season, in season two, up to, see, up to episode seven or eight. And then I had some associate because the time comes so quickly and I'm not able to keep up with gathering information, you know, figuring out what the script's going to be and then getting it ready for broadcast. Uh, once you start going, I don't, I don't ever start a season with all the, with everything written. Mm -hmm. So there's always like a kind of the treadmill starts to go faster and faster as, as the episodes come out and it gets to a point around episodes eight, nine, where I physically am not able to, you know, consider looking at all the scripts myself. So I've had, uh, last season, a couple of associate or a couple of producers that are working with me, uh, chunk out some of the episodes and, uh, then I'll come back and we'll work them together and then I'll work on the last two episodes kind of thing. So I have had help chunking episodes together. Um, and same goes for season three as well, where I was trying to take a break in the summer. It turned into a, two week break rather than four months is which I, which I had planned. I had help constructing, uh, you know, from my previous work, which I had like, you know, hundreds of hours of material from putting, you know, chunking together structure and example voiceover and things. So I go and then rearrange and rewrite, but it it makes it a lot more, a lot easier for me to, uh, consider doing multiple seasons within a year. And I think, I think the regular seasons like season five coming up season one, two and five, It will be the same. It'll be mostly me writing everything. uh, But there may be a couple of episodes that I get some help with.
1: How how much time would you estimate goes into each episode?
0: Oh, geez. So, well, (laughs) field recording, you know, you've got to do the field gathering. Uh, You've got to do transcription uh, of everything. Everything has to be transcribed before you even start writing. Yeah. And then there's the writing process. There's the vetting of the script. So it goes around to everybody, including lawyers, Once it gets vetted, there's the rewriting and then it gets, you know, looked at again and then there's more rewriting (laughs) and then it goes to mix and then there's vetting of the mix and lawyering of the mix and, um, and everything happens sort of in, in sequence. And then, so you've got episode one that's happening too, and then you've got to start episode two. So eventually you get like four episodes, all at different stages (laughs) and it becomes a bit Mm -hmm. chaotic and, you know, which one's been lawyered, which one hasn't, which one's gone through first draft, which one's a second draft. It's a real production yeah. process. It's not just sitting, me talking off the top of my head and then put it to air. You know, it's, it's a very much a, a process and constructed. It's a constructed series, very carefully constructed. It may not sound that way, but, uh, we like it to sound as natural as possible. But, uh, yeah, so how much time does it take? Jeez. It's hard to know. I would say from, so field production, usually I, I don't know. I don't even know how to estimate that be two months off the top. And then that's me doing interviews and stuff. And then, you know, if new things come up, I'm back out in the field recording. So that's another three weeks on top of that, just field recording over mm-hmm. time. And then the scripting process is probably a month and a half to get one script in shape. And then. And you know you do a lot of this concurrently, so it's not like each you're waiting a month and a half for each script. You're doing them sort of three, two or three at the same time, and then all that other process takes about another three weeks. So I I can't even estimate it. It's <laughs> it's a lot of work from top to bottom, bottom to yeah. top.
1: Um, how important is the the music? I, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's it's all audio, and and it really um, you know sets the scene a lot of times. So how much how much thought goes into that?
0: Uh, well, we have a great mixer. Cecil Fernandez is our mixer, and he's worked on the show, uh, for season two and season three, and he'll be doing season five, uh, and four. And he's amazing, and I just kind of, I'm in awe every time I listen to his mixes. And I think Cecil tries to, uh, make them as cinematic as possible. He, uh, takes music from lots of different sources. We have, uh, some music that's brought to us by independent music, musicians. We have some music that's you know created by people on the show, actually, and uh, other music that he gets from other sources. And he tries to layer the music, but also I, in the field, gather a lot of source audio, a lot of wild sound that uh, Cecil uses as part of the score. So there's a lot of natural sounds happening, you know, what's going on around me, you know, wind chimes or dogs or me shuffling papers or walking into a house with the creaky door. All that adds Mm -hmm. to the sort of the world that I'm in and we try to keep people in that world as much as possible without jumping out of it. And uh, this, I think in season five, we're going to try to, I'd like to try using less voiceover from me if possible and using more in the field discussion because I'm trying something new where I, I talk more about what I'm doing while I'm there. But in, uh, inevitably there's going to be transitional moments where I'll have to use voiceover, but we'll tr- we're going to try a slightly different approach i think for season five
1: um well it's 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 really fascinating because um it's it's a bit different than you know what we normally do as as solo podcasters and it's it's always interesting to see the production process uh for what you're doing and the work that gets that's involved behind the scenes so that you know we end up with uh a, you know maybe like a 20 minute 30 minute episode sometimes and there's probably hours if not days of total work that's gone into that
0: oh i mean yeah scripts scripts start at about 100 pages and they end up sometimes around 70 and then the mix takes it down to about 55 you know like so we get you get cut 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 but the scripts can be anywhere up to 120 pages for each episode. Um, wow. Yeah. It's it's quite a process. And it has myse- I have myself asking myself, uh, maybe I should just call family members for each episode and just talk to them for half an hour. <laughs> and, and that's it. <laughs> you know, like just talk yeah. about the case or something. But then I just, I have, no one's going to be satisfied with that. Then I would feel exploitative and, and I would feel like it was just a flavor of the week or something, you know. Um, it's not what I do, so.
1: Yeah. And so I'm, I'm also curious because, you know, as podcasters, we also have uh, our, our normalized going on. And, and so how important is the support of uh, friends and family as you're going through this process?
0: Uh, I tend to involve, I tend to involve my family in the work uh, because I don't like spending a lot of time away from them. So I tend to involve them in, going to these places they don't come with me on the record sessions and they're not like standing behind me or something but i tend to take them along with me and then i go and do something if it's away from uh my you know toronto home base area but they're very understanding uh they all know the cases my son knows everything about the season three that's coming out he knows everything that i know about the case almost he grew up with it he's been in mississippi with me more as many times almost as i have and um I think it's important actually for support, uh, in my case, especially I, I don't think I, I wouldn't be able to do it without that kind of closeness with close knit sort of family connection. Uh, and also friends are involved. I've got friends coming and for example, for season three, the Mississippi case, I had two or three different friends come down with me just to help out, you know, uh, <laughs> they were interested. So they came and, and I make friends on these cases as well so i'm in touch with not only family members who become friends of, of a, in a way uh all the family members but also you know ex-former police and everybody i've got this kind of huge crowd behind me that uh you know and i'm sure you do any, anybody who does any kind of field work and close-knit kind of intense situations develops friendship and that uh that kind of that really helps me you know it's kind of like the the group, the the support group, and I have people calling from different cases and asking me how this one's going and, you know, trying to provide support that way.
1: Yeah. It can't, yeah. We can't understand enough, uh, the, the importance of having that support group, especially when you're dealing with a topic as tough, um, as, as what you're doing with the, with the podcast. Yeah,
0: I and mean, it's um, a bit of a balance. Obviously I'm not going to come home and say, yeah, I just, uh, body blown to smithereens on a picture, you know, like I, <laughs> I don't try to involve yeah. them in that way. I, you know, they, I just talk about the case and things like that. I don't want to give the impression that I'm, you know, sharing personal family information with the family. That's not what I'm doing. But anyway,
1: just a couple, couple more questions as we wrap up, um, just changing gears a little bit. What's something that you've uh, changed your mind about recently? Something that I've changed my mind about. Hmm. These are
0: questions I don't do well on because I change all the time. Like people (laughs) say, what's your favorite, you know, give me your top 10. And I say, I don't have a top 10, you know, it's just like, it
1: changes all the time. All right, so so one more and we might be over two here, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> Sorry. What's uh the one what's the one most misunderstood thing about you? Um well maybe I think people feel that I'm really intense <laughs> that I'm a really
0: intense yeah. guy just before I even open my mouth. It's something about the way I hold my mm-hmm. eyebrows. And I sometimes people think I'm this really intense guy, and I and I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm just like standing here. <laughs> And, uh, (laughs) but I mean, I don't think people hear that in SKS. I think when I go to the door and start talking to people, like I don't frighten people away. I don't hear people running away from me, but I've been told over and over and over again that I'm this, like people are intimidated just by me standing in front of them. And I don't understand that. And I I feel that I feel misunderstood on that front.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It seems like you got to go, uh, the extra, the extra mile just to convince people that you are actually, uh. A, a, a nice guy then
0: exactly, well yeah, i mean I, I have to i have to I feel that I have to like talk extra quiet, you know <laughs> in order <laughs> not to frighten people yeah. away or something anyway yeah
1: uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to to uh, jump on the call it 's been really interesting because you know the world of podcasting there 's no one type of podcast as we 've come to find out, and there 's people doing so many interesting things and the true crime and, and investigative journalism is really fascinating. So I'm 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 glad you were able to shine a light on on the process because it's fascinating for us as podcasters to see the work that gets involved and and how dedicated you are to this uh, to this craft. So thanks for taking the time.
0: Oh, thanks, thanks for taking the interest. I think there's a lot of room in the podcast area for investigative work too, not just on true crime, but you know white collar crime, you know any any yeah. any kind of crime, you know political crime, especially now. Uh, and I just feel like there does it, that's just wide open. And I think there'd be a, a lot of years interested in that and, and agency, like you're, you're actually getting something done. You're making something happen. And I think, uh, people en- enjoy hearing or taking, taking part in that process.
1: Very interesting. Uh, what's the best place for folks to get more information about you and or the podcast?
0: Well, I have a website, uh, That's my last name, region, uh, And also there's the dot. Uh, sorry, cbc.ca slash sks. And that's that's our SKS webpage at CBC.
1: Okay, we'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Um, and thanks again for taking the time and sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm very grateful for David for coming on the show and, and for the way in which I was introduced to him because I, he wasn't on my radar. And it was just um, a way for me to continue to open up. I, if, if I remember correctly, it came through a press release... Um, notice i've been getting a lot of those recently as podcast junkies is getting more visibility and i take the time to read them and if i find something that's engaging or i see a host that's doing something interesting i'm opening myself up um, typically it would only be someone that i'd engage with at a conference um, but i like the idea of mixing it up and and i feel it's my responsibility to introduce you to just new genres and and new types of podcasters that's not a one size fits all uh, we don't all do the same thing, and we don't all do it in the same way, and I think we, we share this common umbrella, or we are un- under this common umbrella of being just passionate about the uh, podcasting, and so I'm going to continue to do that uh, as much as I can um, on our way to episode 200, intro and outro music, as always, composed by Cedar and Soil. Check them out at cedarsoil.com. Don't forget to visit our sponsor and support our sponsor, Podbean you can sign up at podbean.com slash podcast junkies and to take advantage of that uh, giveaway and their partnership with samson that equipment giveaway head on over to podbean um sorry podcastjunkies.com slash podbean samson tune in next week for my conversation with uh someone who i've had the pleasure of helping with his podcast he's a good friend he lives here locally um, uh, just an amazing, amazing storyteller. I'm so excited to finally get him on the show. He is Professor Eric Truels, otherwise known as Truels, host of eTravels with Truels. It's, it's a joy when I get to speak to some, uh, someone who's has such life experience. Uh, it just makes for a much more engaging and fun conversation. And, and on top of that, he's a really good friend as well. So excited to bring you that. Uh, that's going to be happening next week. Uh, you have no doubt stayed to this end. To the end of this episode, because you are a super fan and because you know what's coming, it's the retention hashtag. So this week it's gonna be uh C B C David in honor of the Canadian Broadcasting Company. So it's Season in Charlie, B and Boy, Season is Charlie, David, that's the hashtag, and you can tag myself uh podcast underscore junkies and David at uh drigen, that's uh d-r-i-d G-E-N and just let us know you made it to this far and be included in the super secret club. I might have to get a ring for you guys at some point. (laughs) Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive my weekly episode updates, podcastjunkies.com slash eight tools if you're new. And for the veterans, if you have not done so already, you know that I keep asking you and you know that I'm speaking specifically to you because you haven't done it, podcastjunkies.com slash iTunes and leave us a beautiful uh, five-star review if you believe I merit it. (laughs) that's all guys thank you so much have a fantastic week and thanks again for your support it means the world to me